Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Charlie, how are you today? I'm doing well. Are you in Florida? I am in Florida, and the weather, as it has been all week, is stunning. March pretty nice where you are. Because mm-hmm. it's sunny and no clouds in the sky, but it's not too humid, and there's a breeze. Well, that sounds lovely. We have about four nice, nice weeks a year in Texas, as you know, and uh, so two in the spring and, and two in the fall. And I think we're in one of our nice uh, spring weeks Excellent. right now. So um, hooray for us. I wanted to talk a little bit today about the um, Biden so-called billionaire's tax, a couple of different things to say about it, a couple of different broad areas of conversation I thought we might um, go with on that. But one thing I wanted to start with before we we talk about the merits or demerits of this particular idea, which, by the way, before we should go, we should all just start by acknowledging that this is silly and it's never going to happen. And um, Congress probably is going to reject it just out of hand, even if it weren't unconstitutional, which it pretty obviously is. This is one of those things that demagogues like to do to change the subject from things they actually want to talk, don't want to talk about to theoretical things they do want to talk about. This is, by the way, one of my least favorite sort of sophomoric um, rhetorical strategies, which is ignore all the grimy details of what's actually going on in the world and say, I've got this brilliant hypothetical idea that's never going to happen. And the ideal version of my policy that exists in my head is in many ways preferable to the real world policy that exists in the real world. Well, of course it is. That's why it's in your head and not out in the real world. But one of the things I'm writing about for um, tomorrow, I think, is um, sort of a related thing that I might want to talk about for just a minute, which is that irrespective of whether you think tax rates are too high or you think tax rates are too low, I think that a lot of us could agree that we have enough taxes and that we don't need any new ones. In fact, we probably have too many taxes. I've been going through trying to catalog all of the individual taxes that the federal government actually collects. And there's a bunch of them once you start going down to the level of individual excise taxes, you know, on alcohol and tobacco and the tax for the uh, Airways Trust Fund and, and and all those other sorts of things. So there's a lot of them out there. If you want to raise taxes because you think the federal government needs more money, and that's a perfectly defensible point of view, in fact, one that I'm sometimes pretty open to um, compared to a lot of other conservatives, there are a lot of ways to do that. Um, one is by raising the income tax rates, either at the top or in the middle or in some combination of those things, or raising the tax on capital gains and other sorts of investment income. These are things that you can do. Um, you can you can raise all sorts of um, you know other taxes. All of those would be the main ones. You can raise the payroll tax if you want to have more money to put into entitlements and things like that. But those are all things that can be done and that actually affect people in the real world. So people don't want to talk about that. Instead of saying, well, instead of having a uh, top rate a top marginal rate that starts at, what is it, $640,000 a year for a married couple? Why don't we do it like the Europeans do it and have it start at $110,000 for a married couple? You know, people who make 1.5 times the uh, median household income rather than people who make 10 times uh, the median household income. That would raise a lot of money. 
um, that would create a lot of new federal revenue would be a real tax increase. But no one wants to talk about a real tax increase because it would um, be too politically costly to talk about something that could actually be done. So you and I and people like us, we like to talk about, you know, kind of radical ideas for reforming the tax code. You know, I like the idea of getting rid of the income tax and replacing it with a carbon tax. I think it would be a nice kind of um, opportunity for compromise between libertarians and uh, climate activists. And it would create certain, you know, environmental incentives that would be um, desirable. And it would also relieve us from the necessity of complying with, you know, really invasive uh, audits of our finances annually, essentially by the federal government, which I don't like very much at all. I think it's one of the worst parts of the income tax is the invasion of privacy that goes along with it. But this is stuff for, you know, pundits and think tankers and academics to talk about. If you're actually in Congress or in the White House and you're trying to write a budget, well, we're going to come up with a new tax that doesn't cost me anything politically. It's just basically an unserious idea. So as we said about eviscerating this unserious idea, I think that's maybe a good place to start with. Yeah, so before we get to the details of it, one thing about this that really, truly amused me is that even with this tax, the sales pitch and the details are hilariously out of whack. As you say, the flaw in progressive thinking, at least that's it's applied into practical politics in America, is that unlike in Britain or Sweden, the progressive movement as represented within the Democratic Party is not willing to say everyone needs to pay more taxes, we need a VAT that will make everything more expensive, the real money's in the middle class, and in exchange for paying that money to the government, you'll get services. And so they say... We're going to tax the rich. Now, often, that ends up not really meaning the rich. That ends up meaning, you know, your average doctor. But in this case, it's called the billionaire's tax, and it applies to people who aren't billionaires. Yes. (laughs) It's called the billionaire's tax, but it starts at, what, $100 million? Yeah, I mean, people like you and me. You know, I mean, I make a couple hundred million dollars a year. I know you do too. Well, look, and, they're uh, very rich, people who have a hundred million dollars by any stretch. But even when they're doing the thing that they promise to do, which is, don't worry, this isn't about normal people. This is just about the super wealthy. <laughs> they still can't sell it, honestly. Yeah, I think the pitch isn't people who have a hundred million dollars net worth. I think it's people who've had a hundred million dollars in income for a certain number of years running. Okay. Which is a pretty small number of people, by the way. It's also different Um, than being a billionaire. It is. And, um, you know, a lot of people who um, end up being very wealthy have essentially one payday in their lives, which comes usually when they sell a business. And, um, you know, there are people out there who are worth something on the order of $100 million who've never had a salary that was more than $200,000. Um, but then one year they sold the business that was paying them that, and they made $150 million, and after taxes they had $100 million. And that sort of thing happens. I mean, my numbers are a little exaggerated there probably in most cases, but that is you know, how, how things typically sort of work. So one of the things that um, I hate about this conversation is this thing of, well, you know, we have these Wall Street types who pay lower taxes than teachers and nurses. And uh, by the way, they always pick nurses. Nurses 
tend to make pretty good money. I think uh, I was looking the other day, the uh, median wage for a nurse practitioner in Texas is like $140,000 a year or something like that. So it's not, not, not nothing. It's not, you know, billionaire money, but that's, that's, that's pretty good money. Um, of course, the, the difference here is that we, for a long time, and like most other countries, tax investment income in a different way than we tax salary income. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that we already tax business income, so dividends and such are being paid out of income that's already been taxed at the corporate income tax level. But also we want to encourage people to be entrepreneurs and take risks and start businesses and that sort of thing. And so we make it, from a tax point of view, more desirable to invest. And um, if you are the sort of person who is going to make $100 million or $200 million, you don't get that in salary. I mean, there's essentially nobody who gets a salary that looks like that. These are you know, people who are being paid in equity in various kinds. And uh, the other thing is that this is not an annual thing. It gets paid out at some point. And so what Biden wants to do, which is the really crazy thing, is essentially to tax imaginary income to say, well, you've got this investment and it's gone up X amount of dollars uh, in the last year. And so we're going to treat that X amount of dollars as income, even though you haven't realized the income, even nothing's hit your bank account. And even though if we're talking about stocks and financial instruments or, you know, the valuation of a business, these things go down as well as up. So we basically we'd be taxing people on uh, income that they haven't had yet. So the way I explain this to people is if you're a homeowner in the United States, you've probably seen your house value go up pretty radically in the last couple of years, uh, pretty substantially. Now, imagine being taxed on that, but you haven't sold your house. You, know, you haven't made any income. You've just got this asset that notionally is worth more now than it was yesterday. Um, that is probably unconstitutional because the Constitution, the what is it, the 16th Amendment that created the income tax? Yes. Um, it does authorize Congress to lay taxes on income. It does not authorize taxes to lay taxes, uh, Congress to lay taxes on hypothetical income or imaginary income or potential future income, which is what this would be, which is just nuts. So let me ask you, just from a layman's perspective, and I am a layman on this, it strikes me as being extremely unfair, bordering on arbitrary, to say to somebody who owns something, we will tell you when you have to sell it. Yeah. And although these taxes don't require a sale, they do potentially deprive people of income or the generation of wealth that they would otherwise have obtained purely because of the calendar. Yeah. Is that correct? I mean, suppose, sure. that, suppose that you set December 31st as your cutoff point. Now, in all circumstances with taxes, there is something arbitrary about that. For example, if I have a business and we have a big expense, but instead of that money leaving our account on the 28th of December, it's delayed and it comes out on the 5th of January the following year, we might end up paying more as a result yeah. of that because we might have more income in the first year than in the second, and so 
the write-off is worth less than it would have been. So there's always an arbitrary line somewhere. But sure. in this case... You structure you know, book deals so that your payments land in different tax years so that you only get half of it in one tax year and half of it in the next tax year so it doesn't raise your income as much for tax purposes. Right. And, and so if you end up on the wrong side of the line that has been set into law, which for... You know, most companies is on an annual basis, wherever the start and end date is. You're going to have some arbitrariness. But in this case, the small c conservative tradition in the United States is that people are allowed to leave their investments and assets um, to fester for as long as they want and sell them when they want. Um, this takes that away, at least in part, right? Yeah, it does. So, I mean, as you, as you probably know, there's an accounting thing called mark to market. And what that means is you essentially, for accounting purposes, you take an asset and you value it at whatever the market price is right now. So that's, it's actually a pretty useful tool for some things. So, I mean, it's a snapshot, but it's a useful snapshot. So if you're looking at a bank or, you know, another financial company and uh, you want to get an idea of the strength of its financial position, you take a look at what its assets are worth and you use mark to market to do that. Now, tomorrow they might be worth more, they might be less. But, you know, if you do this quarterly or some, you know, on some regular basis, you get a pretty good idea of the strength of their position. Um, useful for that sort of thing, not really very useful for assessing taxes. And, um, you know, you're talking about people, you were talking about people holding stuff until they decide to sell it. Well, of course, in some cases, this could force a sale of things because you've got to raise the money to pay those taxes and you haven't actually uh, realized the income. We see this occasionally. Um, Now, sometimes the rhetoric on this gets, you know, really silly and inflated. But, you know, the classic example of that is um, estate taxes on farms where someone will inherit um, a large piece of property from your parents or grandparents, and the uh, tax bill that comes with it is so substantial that they can't afford to hold on to the asset and they're forced to sell it. Um, now, we're talking about financial assets here. That's you know, a slightly different you know, kind of thing, but a similar dynamic could play out um, in some ways. But the main thing, of course, is that this isn't actually income. And uh, in a sense, it's funny that this sort of punishes people for being uh, less extravagant than they could be. Um, you know, so for instance, if you are someone who has a billion dollars worth of stock in company X and uh, your investment is currently returning you $70 million a year. And uh, but you're someone of you know relatively modest lifestyle, and you only need four million dollars a year to live, or five million dollars a year to live. You know, like you and me. And um, again, the same joke. Sorry. <laughs> so you don't actually draw the investment down because you're not spending the money. Uh, you're letting it sit there and uh, continue to be an investment rather than be turned into consumption. All right, hold on. We got some dachshunds here. Delivery man coming to the door, the dachshund alarm goes off. Um, I have to yell at the dogs, but uh, maybe they won't have to. Anyway, so, um, you know, we, uh, 
the beneficial treatment of investment income only counts for long-term investment income. So it's not, you know, people who are day traders who are speculating on, uh, uh, you know, commodities futures and things like that and cashing in at the end of the day who get a benefit. It's people who make an investment in something and hold that position for a year or more. And typically, you know, you're talking about people who've had positions for a long, long time. You know, I was going through uh, the other day when I was writing about this. If you if you look at the people who become billionaires in the United States, they're almost all people who founded companies. Or in the case of uh, the 20th wealthiest person in America getting divorced from a guy who founded a, a very large, important company that sells things on the Internet. Um, so, you know, if you look at the, the 20 wealthiest people in America, it's Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, um, you know, the people who founded Google, the people who founded Microsoft, the people who founded, you know, this, that and the other. Um, several Waltons on the list and, and that sort of thing. And most of them are, you know, the actual business founders, not their heirs. You've got a couple of Walton heirs and then you've got um, the former Mrs. Bezos, um, who just having half of that fortune ends up being, you know, among the 20 wealthiest Americans or 25 or whatever it was. That's how, you know, people tend to, to make a lot of money in this country. And if you are someone who does that, you know, there aren't a lot of founders out there who start a business, um, make a billion dollars and exit it six months later. <laughs> you know, this is something that people are in for, for years and years and years. And, um, in theory, this is the sort of thing that we really want to encourage people to do. You know, everyone always complains about short-termism in yeah. business and, you know, being driven by quarterly returns and all that. Well, Amazon was started in 1994. And I guarantee you there are shareholders in Amazon who have had an equity position in the country since company since 1994. Yeah. Yeah. So this is what I was going to ask you. So I have investments in stocks and I've had to learn how it works as I've gone along, partly because I didn't know anything about stocks at all when I started and partly because I needed to look up the rules in America. Mm -hmm. And... One thing I learned is that there is a substantially different capital gains rate depending on how long you hold the stock for. Yeah. So the, and correct me if I'm wrong here, the short-term capital gains rate is essentially the same as my income tax rate. But the long-term yes. capital gains rate is, what, 15% flat? 15 or 20%. Uh, yeah, depending on the, the asset. So yeah. uh, I, one thing, by the way, that uh, it sounds silly, but that I had to look up is, well, how does this work? And I learned that, it's first in, first out. But because money's fungible, I was sort of wondering how they would distinguish if I had bought shares every month for 10 years. You know, which ones am I selling, right? Because they're not tagged. Um, but anyway, so what that suggests to me is that the government wants people to make longer-term investments, that it's fine if you make a short-term profit, uh, but that there is a tax... Uh, benefit to leaving your money in a company for more than what is it a year and then it yeah. gets the long-term treatment um so how does well, you this know, think about it, I mean, and then the people that everyone sort of hates you know donald trump used to go on and on about this um are private equity investors and private equity investors are typically in you know for the long term because they invest in large positions in companies and take an interest in how that company is structured and run and that sort of thing. They're not, you know, guys sitting at a Bloomberg terminal 
who are, you know, into a position at five o'clock in the morning and out of position by lunchtime. You know, they're not high frequency uh, trading platforms and things like that. You know, venture capitalists, the guys who actually put up the money that start the uh, companies that have provided so much of our growth in income and investment value and all that are often in these you know companies for long, long periods of time. You know, they are uh, they're real long term partners for the companies that they fund. And that is how entrepreneurship happens. And one of the reasons we like to get people into those sorts of jobs is because they create so much wealth. You know, think about how much better off the country is just financially because of a small number of companies that yeah. were started. You know, Apple, Microsoft, Oracle, Google, Facebook. Um, I don't like all those products. I think morally the world would probably be better off without Facebook. But um, and it's not just Mark Zuckerberg who got rich from Facebook. You know, it's there's a lot of people who work there who make real incomes and people who have businesses that are sort of based on Facebook in one way or another, who are supporting all sorts of you know families and and uh, other sorts of things. So these are um, these are real social gains from having this kind of entrepreneurial environment. I always ask people, what's Germany's most famous internet startup? All right, but so no one knows because there's not one. So explain you this know, to me. Like, someone like Jeff Bezos could have gone and worked on Wall Street or something like that. And he wouldn't have been their wealthiest man in the world, but he would have made, you know, five, 10, 20 million dollars a year and been perfectly happy. And um, we wouldn't have had the things that he created. You know, Elon Musk could have done a lot of things in life besides start a car company from scratch. So explain this to me then. The. Argument in favor of leaving things as they are, well, one of them, is that you want Jeff Bezos to invest in the United States and create companies that thrive over a number of years and become institutions. You don't want everyone either taking a job where they earn good money, but there's not the capacity to become a Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, or uh, just playing the market, essentially. You want to create things of value. Now, the counter-argument, at least the argument that is put forward by, say, Elizabeth Warren, is, okay, fine, but when Jeff Bezos sells his shares, he pays the lower capital gains rate. And, you know, the guy on Wall Street who gets a $2 million bonus is paying, you know, 35 40%. Mm-hmm. on that but jeff bezos is paying 15 or 20 percent and that's not fair mm. well wouldn't it make more sense and i'm not advocating this but wouldn't it make more sense just to say well we're going to have a progressive capital gains tax so if you sell your shares and the value of the gain is above x then the rate is 40 percent Sure, that's one thing you could do, um, and there are places, there are countries that do it that way that have progressive um, taxes on on investment income. There isn't any reason in principle you couldn't do that. But why do they prefer um, the system that we're talking about? Because it just seems to me that, and I understand that there isn't quite the same uh, political incentive, and I understand it's a little bit different economically too. But I have shares. I put money into retirement accounts and other accounts, but I also have shares because the limits of what I can do tax-free for my retirement are fairly low. Mm -hmm. And so I have 
you know, normal, non-privileged shares. Now, governments presumably like that. And even if you just put money in the, you know, the Dow Jones Industrial Tracker, that over time, on average, is going to work out okay for me. And they want me to leave the money in for a while. The government is not, I hope, going to come to me as a, you know, despite our jokes, not somebody who has $100 billion. Um, they're not going to come to me and say, Charles, every year at a random point, you will be taxed on the potential gains. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, they might say, we're going to raise income taxes on people in the middle class. They might say, we're going to raise the capital gains rates, both short and long term. They might say, you know, we're going to raise your property taxes and so on. So why, to go back to the first question, why is this taxing theoretical gains or arbitrarily enforced gains a thing? I mean, why not just raise the rate? Well, I think it's, I think it's just driven by the politics. So if you come up with a real plan to do something with the actual tax code that costs somebody something, and you will get unwelcome political feedback for that. But if you come up with a pie-in-the-sky system that is, you know, sort of um, glowing and theoretical, then uh, and also not very likely to happen, then you don't get a lot of feedback. You know, someone like Jeff Bezos isn't going to go probably raise a lot of hell and make a big public stink about a tax proposal that he's 99.9% sure isn't ever going to happen. So I think that um, that's really, really what drives that. Yeah, you, so you were talking about something earlier that I wanted to just talk about for sure. a second, that um, we do write the tax code in a certain way because we want to incentivize certain kinds of behavior. And um, this is an annoying thing that you and I have talked about where, you know, one year the president gives a speech and says, we're going to encourage manufacturing in this country or we're going to encourage this industry or that industry. And here are the tax incentives that we're going to use to encourage that. And then five years later, someone in his party gives a speech. Oh, my God, people in this industry aren't paying very much in tax because of yeah. these tax incentives. So we're creating, you know, and it's usually the same people complaining who created the tax incentives. I think that we think about this all wrong. I think it's a lot more important to think about disincentives than incentives as such. So the point of the tax code is to raise enough money for the federal government to do the things the federal government needs to do. And um, in the theoretical world in which we can all more or less agree on what it is the federal government needs to do, we can figure out how much money that takes. And the only point of the tax code should be how do we raise that money in the least destructive and uh, invasive way that we can. Now, if I were designing a tax code from scratch, I probably wouldn't have an income tax at all. Um, I wouldn't have a system like the one that we have, but this is the system that we have. And very likely the system that we're going to have is going to look a lot like the one that we already have with some small changes. Um, you know, these kind of moralistic and grand ideas about replacing the whole tax code with this or that or doing this thing that way or that thing the other way, these things aren't really very likely to happen. There isn't any kind of consensus for radical tax reform, and there certainly isn't any consensus behind any particular radical reform agenda. So what we have is kind of what we're going to have, and people who insist on pretending that that's not the case are 
just being politically unserious, I think. And they're afraid to talk about what the actual choices before us are. Do you think there's an element of this that is driven by short-term panic? If you go back to... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, if you go back to the late 1990s, do you remember Donald Trump? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) At that point, uh, I believe a member of the Reform Party uh, was in favor of a one-time... 28% 28% net worth tax, wasn't it? Something like that. Right. Now, the Balance reason the for that, and of course, this looks quaint now, uh, was that we wanted to wipe out uh, about $2 trillion worth of debt. And this was yeah. one way of doing it. Now, of course, it's now grown to, to $30 trillion. So if we had a system where we just raised the capital gains tax on people whose gains are worth over a certain figure, we could get those billionaires that we supposedly hate so much uh, to pay their so-called fair share, but but maybe in 30 years. I mean, right. I can I mean, save my Jeff whole Bezos life. doesn't need any money right now. No, but but also, I mean, even if you did it at, the, at a lower level, if you did it uh, and you were targeting people who maybe had $20 million, I mean, mm-hmm. again, they're going to save their shares most of their life, and then they're going to start paying the taxes on them, uh, either when they you know, sell them off in one fell swoop for whatever reason, or when they retire. But if you're looking at a 30 plus trillion dollar debt, and interest rates beginning to go up, and deficits that aren't going away, and a political yeah. system, I mean, is it, this is a magic bullet, right? This is, well, here's how we can force Jeff Bezos to give us billions of dollars next year. Yeah, and that's the same idea behind Elizabeth Warren's proposed wealth tax. Yeah. Is um, let's not wait for these people to realize their income. Let's just pillage them right now instead of at some point in the future. And, um, you know, some people who favor this sort of thing point out, and this is a reasonable thing to point out, that if you're someone who's got $500 million in assets or a billion dollars in assets or $20 billion in assets, you can borrow money for almost nothing. And whatever your personal living expenses are, you can borrow that money against the assets you have for basically nothing and uh, keep your money in the investment without uh, realizing any income from it for a very long time. Now, that doesn't last forever, of course. These things eventually have to be uh, paid back. But um, it is something that can keep people off the tax rolls effectively for, you know, 20 years, 30 years, something like that. But of course, if you're the federal government, you should probably be thinking in longer terms than that. Right. And then, of course, the last reason I find this so distasteful and alarming, not that it's going to happen, as you say, is that I, as a rule, think that individuals, especially individuals who have found and have an emotional investment in the companies that they own, are a much better place to determine when they should sell than either a politician making that decision on the fly or some arbitrary deadline that's been set by the IRS. And I suspect Elizabeth Warren does not think that, but she's she's wrong. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, and it's very much a, you know, goose that laid the golden egg situation. You know, if you go back and look at the total returns on uh, the U.S. stock markets for the last 20 years, a shocking share of them is made up 
of a relatively small handful of companies. Um, yeah. You know, mostly tech companies that were startups at some point from the 90s onward and that grew into these multi-trillion dollar global uh, behemoths. And that's a, a pretty delicate ecosystem. You know, that's something you probably don't want to mess with too much because, um, again, you know, capital has choices about where it goes. Just because the United States and particularly California have been the home of this kind of innovation investment for a long time doesn't mean that people in China don't want to do it, that people in Singapore don't want to do it, that people in Abu Dhabi or Germany or Switzerland or the United Kingdom or Ireland don't want to do this stuff. And capital knows how to find its way to a place where it is valued and, uh, and treated with love and care rather than a place where it's you know treated like uh, dairy cattle to be milked. And um, that's why I really worry about creating uh, disincentives. I think that we would be better off with a simpler tax code with fewer exemptions and handouts and special treatments, probably fewer total taxes, even if that meant rates were a little higher and people paid a little more. Um, you would save some money in compliance costs, which are a big thing. Um, you know, businesses spend by some estimates, about as much on tax compliance as they do on paying taxes. So that's a huge uh, burden on them that if it were simplified and their compliance costs went down, but their tax bills went up a little, that could, if done the right way, end up being a, uh, a net gain for everybody, except for the tax preparation industry, <laughs> you know, tax lawyers and tax lobbyists. But screw those guys, right? They can, uh, they can fend for themselves for all we care. So there are things that we could do, and I think there are actually some pretty big ideas that could get some wide bipartisan support. I think it would have to be bipartisan support that sort of started outside of Congress because the incentives inside of Congress are all just wrong. But if there's you know kind of a general uh, consensus behind some kind of broad fiscal reform program outside of Congress, even if it meant you know higher taxes in some cases. I think that there are a lot of people who could buy into that if we could have a uh, sort of intelligent and grown up and honest conversation about it instead of this cartoonish conversation we have about, you know, monopoly man, billionaires and top hats and monocles who are diving into pools of gold coins like Scrooge McDuck, which is just not how the world or the economy actually works. Yeah. So final question on this. Do you think that it is intrinsically unfair that, say, a secretary, let's use the classic example, pays a marginal tax rate of 22%, but <laughs> when he sells all of his shares in Amazon, Jeff Bezos uh, pays 15%. Because I actually don't, and I don't for two reasons. First off, uh, I know you've written about this before, the fact that Bezos would end up paying tens, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars, I think matters. It, mm -hmm. it, it's it's 15% of, you know, a trillion dollars in theory. <laughs> that, you know, that that's a lot of money. And second, suppose that you have two people, one of them works at McDonald's, and the other one uh, has the same amount of money invested. And the investment rate is 15%, and the person who works at McDonald's is a 22%, just, just for the sake of argument. Yeah. The person who's invested that same amount of money can lose it. Yes. I mean, surely there should be some accounting for the fact that 
if you work a job, as we do, uh, leave aside, say, inflation, the money that comes in every month is guaranteed. But mm-hmm. if you are investing, and we want people to invest in companies, <laughs> whether they're Jeff you're, Bezos you're, or just your way, average you, person. If you think it's guaranteed, you haven't been fired as many times as I have. Right. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, true, true. That's not what I meant, though. Well, but yeah. the, the, the money that is invested can be lost. And it's not as if yep. we don't have lots of examples of people losing it. It seems just odd to me, given the incentives and disincentives that you mentioned, that we get happy when the stock market goes up and we say it was a good day for stocks. <laughs> right. And yet yeah. we're angry that people get to keep the money that they <laughs> they make from it. I don't... Yeah, that is a funny thing. Envy does funny things to people. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so my, my point on this for my column tomorrow, anyway, is going to be that we already have enough taxes. We don't need a new one. If you want to raise taxes, and there's there's a good argument for raising taxes. I know most conservatives won't agree with it, but there are some pretty good arguments for raising taxes. We've already got taxes to raise. Um, and the politically courageous thing, as well as the economically useful thing, would be talking about that rather than this pie-in-the-sky theoretical hypothetical stuff. All right. Well, I look forward to reading it. Well, I look forward to finishing it. So <laughs> I guess I'm going to get off the phone now. I'll talk to you later, Charles. <laughs>